Now, some of you guys look really familiar because you might remember my wife and I visited back in March. We were uh, over here visiting, actually over in Slovenia, visiting missionaries that our church supports, friends of ours for a week. And on the way back, we stopped in the UK uh, for just like a husband-wife vacation. We've been here multiple times. My wife, she has family that lives here. And so um, we were traveling through the area. We were actually staying in Windsor. And through just kind of a divine appointment, when we have a free Sunday when we're traveling, we always look for somewhere to go to church. And I'm the pastor of a Calvary Chapel, so I always look for Calvary Chapels. And the closest Calvary Chapel was this one. So I, I, I had heard of this church from friends of ours. Uh, we're from the Northwest. I pastor a church in Astoria, Oregon, which is uh, kind of over there near Seattle, where Rob and his family were from. So we're friends with similar people, and these people had mentioned this church. And so I got Rob's contact, text him to try to figure out how to get here, because we didn't have a car. And it's always 50-50 if a pastor's ever going to get back to you when you text him. So I didn't really expect like him to get back to me, but he did. And so he told us how to get here by like bus and train, and it was like a big old ordeal. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. But I'm like, we'll pray about it, and in the morning we'll see if you know the Lord puts on our heart to figure out a way to get here. So woke up in the morning, didn't really have a clear leaning, went, took a shower. But when I got out of the shower, there was a text on my phone from Rob, and he was like, oh, I'm really looking forward to meeting you guys. Maybe we can take you out to lunch. And so I'm like, I can't leave this guy hanging. So we got an Uber, came here, and we fellowshiped with you guys for a Sunday, and it was great. And then hung out with Rob and his family the rest of the day, and they, they took us out to eat and took us sightseeing. And we've been friends since. I've, I get together with him every couple weeks on Zoom, and we pray together. And he, uh, when he came, he's from the Northwest. He's actually from a church only three hours away from us, and I'm very good friends with the pastor that founded that church. And so he, we invited him when he recently visited home down to speak at our church, and so he blessed us with teaching the word. And he had invited me to come and fill in for him when he was gone. So this is a real privilege to, to be able, I mean, it, it blows me away that God would use me to teach his word at all. But to bring me all the way to the UK to teach it to his saints here, that's just a real mind-blowing thing for me. And just to tell you a little background, um, I spent the first 20 years of my life not in a relationship with Jesus. I grew up in a home that was not anti-God, but maybe agnostic, just kind of thinking God was up there. And we didn't go to church or anything. And as a result of that, I just had a lot of issues in my life. My, my father and my mother got divorced when I was like 10, and he left the picture. And that left me, I didn't know at the time, but with some identity issues where I was constantly looking for acceptance by people. It was the most important thing in the world for people to like me. And on the outside, I acted like I was cool and I had it all together, but inside I was broken and always worrying what people thought, and that led to uh, trying to mask that pain through things like drugs and alcohol, and my life was just a big mess. I was a big wretch, and um, somebody introduced me to Jesus when I was in my 20s in college, and I never looked back. I knew that that's who I needed. And I recognized right away how real he was when he came into my life. And I just wanted to follow him because I found everything I was looking for. And a, and a perfect father that accepted me just as I was, um, but loved me too much to leave me that way. So the process of changing me started. And even though I was very happy just being the guy in the back serving however God wanted me to serve, he had a very real plan for me. Um, so. I worked as an engineer for 15 years, um, but all the churches we went to, God would place me in positions of teaching and overseeing. And uh, six years ago today, he called me into full-time ministry uh, with a, in the church that we'd been in for since 2007, and our pastor got called to go somewhere else, and he asked me to pray about taking over. And I did not want to do it at all. I never saw myself as a lead pastor. But after praying about it for a year and asking the Lord to please shut the door, he never did. So I just stepped into it in faith. 
And six years later, I'm still here with many lessons the Lord has taught me, showing me why I needed to do this for him. Uh, most of all, because it just has helped me understand his love for me to a greater degree and really refined me in ways that I couldn't have any other way. So um, all that to say is, uh, it's, it's a privilege to get to share God's word with you guys today. And I am going to try to, we're, we're going through the book of Romans. We teach verse by verse at our church, similar to what Rob does. And we're going through the book of Romans right now. It's been a real blessing for our church body to be encouraged by it. And we just got done going through Romans 8, which is one of the most encouraging chapters of the Bible there is. And I really, as I was praying up to this trip, felt led that the Lord would have me share uh, that chapter with you guys too. But here's the kick. I'm going to try to get through it in two teachings when I did through it, it went through it in three there. So that's going to be hard. Um, but I asked Rob to, uh, I gave him a time to finish teaching when he taught in our church and he went 20 minutes past that time without any caring. So I'm guessing that he, you must be used to long-winded pastors. So uh, I'm sure you won't care. So all that to say is, um, it's interesting how you guys share uh, things God did during your week that were good. Because what I heard in some of those testimonies is that some of you guys are going through some very real hard things. And that is um, something that I want to talk about today because I think you guys would agree life feels hard a lot of times, right? Because there's a lot of difficult things we go through. And Jesus, yeah, Jesus is actually really honest with that, right? In, In John 16, 33, he tells us, even though we're Christians, that doesn't make our lives easy. He says that you're gonna go through tribulation in this world, but you can take heart or have courage because he's overcome this world. But just because we know ahead of time that it's going to be hard, that doesn't make it any easier when you are going through difficulties in life. They still feel hard. And I would argue that without God and his word to tell us otherwise, there's really no reason to be hopeful in the midst of hard things or to expect something good to come out of those hard things unless you are a believer and you believe in God's word because he's actually told us that, right? And I believe that's why so many people in the world that don't know Jesus, that's why there's so much, so much anxiety. There's so much depression people deal with because they don't have the hope that, that God gives us, the God of hope. But for those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus, he's given us every reason, so many reasons, reason upon reason, to be hopeful. And when I say hopeful, it's not a wishy-washy type of like, well, I just hope things work out. He's given us sure promises where we can have a confident expectation that things are going to be okay, that they're going to work out in our favor, no matter what it is we're facing. And a bunch of those reasons are given to us in Romans 8. In Romans 8, maybe you guys have heard this before. It's actually a chapter in the Bible that some have called the antidote or cure for depression or anxiety. And it's because that typically when somebody's struggling from those things, it's for one of three reasons. It's either due that they're haunted by something in their past, or they're troubled by something going on in the present, or they're worried about something in their future, okay? And Paul, the writer of Romans, addresses each of those situations in this chapter, and he gives us all these reasons, reason upon reason, to basically not worry in any of those situations, as he tells us the benefits that we've received as followers of Jesus Christ. Not benefits you have to earn, but benefits you've been given through your faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start breaking down this this chapter uh, verse by verse. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, we just want to settle our minds and our hearts so we're ready to receive the seeds of your word, Lord. You give us this example telling how there's different types of soils that the seeds of the word fall on. And we want to be those soils that are tilled and, and ready to receive it so your seeds can grow and the roots can run deep and and, the, and produce fruit in our lives. Grow up into fruitful plants, Lord. We, we don't want to just hear these things and think that we know them because we, we, we have them in our head. We want to the, believe these things in our hearts so we could experience the benefits 
of these promises, of these, these very things that you've given us through faith in your son that are meant to give us hope in our lives. Maybe we came in here without hope, but you today want to speak to us so we can leave here filled with it, Lord. So may you help us be ready to receive what it is that your Holy Spirit wants to say to us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So just to give you a little context of where we're at what in this section of scripture we're going to be in today, uh, as we get to the end of Romans 7, we see Paul basically focusing on how hard it is to try to live a righteous life in his own power. He's a Christian, but he's saying that it's super hard. Like he actually says in Romans 7, 24, that he feels wretched. And the idea is that he feels miserable and exhausted because no matter how hard he tried in his own power, it was impossible to be a good person. But in that place of desperation, as he's feeling this wretchedness, he gets his eyes off himself and he puts his eyes on God. And then all of a sudden he has a heart of thanks because he realizes that what's impossible through his own effort is very possible or has been made possible through his faith in Jesus because now God's in his life and it can enable him to live righteously, can help him do what he can never do in his own power. And so as we get into Romans 8, it's a continuation of Paul recognizing who he is in Christ. Basically, all the benefits, God's given him this benefit of he has God's strength now, and he can do the things that he couldn't do before, and so it's this list of all these benefits he has because he's in Christ, and he starts out by giving us this benefit, this reason that gives us uh, a reason not to worry about our past. Remember, one of those things that can cause anxiousness or depression in your life is being worried or, or struggling with what you've done in your past. And what he gives us in this first benefit is a reason why you don't have to worry about your past, and that is that you are free from the guilt of sin. Number one, if you're a note taker, you wanna write this down or mentally put it in your head, the first benefit we have in Christ is that you are free from the guilt of sin. As Paul says in Romans 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation. The definition of that is the action of condemning someone to a punishment or sentencing. So in the context of this passage, what it's talking about is the condemnation that your sin deserves from God. Paul spends the first seven chapters proving that every single person that's lived on this earth is a sinner. Sin is basically when you disobey what God says is good and right. God gets to decide that because he made everything. He, of all people, knows what's good and what's bad. And so when we disobey God, we are guilty of sin. And every single person has done that at some point in their life. Therefore, we deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment. And God says that the ultimate penalty for your sin, my sin, is death. The wages of sin is death. So that's what he's talking about, this condemnation. But what he says here is if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are in Christ, as he says in verse 1, or you've been joined together with him through his spirit that has come into you and resides in you. And since Jesus himself already took the condemnation, our sin deserved upon himself on the cross and he conquered death through his resurrection because he didn't stay dead, right? He rose from the grave. The condemnation our sin deserved is what put him in the grave, but he rose from the grave, so therefore he's not condemned anymore, and therefore, because you're unified with him, you're in Christ, you're not condemned for any sin you've ever done or any sin you'll ever do because the Father no longer sees you in your sin. He sees you in his Son. When my wife and I go to our favorite restaurant back in Astoria, they have really good desserts. And they do this thing that all restaurants should do if they want to make money. They have a dessert tray where they have a, a sample of each dessert, and they bring it to your table. And they go like, would you like dessert? 
And what it makes it really hard to do is just pick one dessert because you're like, well, that looks good, that looks good, that looks good. So my wife and I, even though we have some favorite desserts there, we usually pick multiple desserts. And as soon as those sinfully delicious desserts hit our table, they quickly become hidden and buried in me where they're no longer visible. And just like that example, you and your sinful tendencies are buried and hidden in Christ. So when, they, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failings, but rather he sees you robed in the righteousness of his son, as Isaiah 61, 10 talks about. And this is a glorious truth for Paul to acknowledge, because remember, he just got done acknowledging that he still struggled with sin in Romans 7, that He's unable to do the things he wants to do, and, and the things that he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he, he does do. So he, he basically acknowledges that as a Christian, he still struggles from sin. But here, he reminds himself and us that in Jesus, he's free from the guilt of that sin, because the penalty for it has been paid for, so therefore, there's no condemnation. And not only are we free from the guilt of our sin, but through faith in Jesus, the next benefit Paul tells us about is that you're also free from the power of sin, so you're not doomed to continue to repeat your past mistakes. What you couldn't do in your own power, you can do in Christ now because he's inside of you, so you don't have to repeat those same mistakes that you've made. You're free of the guilt of them, but you're also free from the power of sin, so you don't have to keep doing them. He says in verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, or that's another way of sending Jesus as a person, or for sin, or as a sin offering. So God sent his son as a person for a sin offering. It says he condemned sin in the flesh, verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul very thoroughly explains what the law of sin in death is what he references there in verse two in the previous chapters of Romans. And if I could sum that up, it's basically that we're all sinful, I already said this kind of, and that the penalty for our sin is death. That's the law of sin and death summed up, what he explains in more detail in the first seven chapters. And all you have to do to see that that law is in effect is look at your own life and be honest and see that there's sin after sin in your own life and then go to the nearest graveyard and look at all the dead people in it. You can see that, that that law is very much in effect in this world, all right? But as absolute as that law is, there's a much greater law Paul talks about here in verse two that can set us free from the power of the law of sin and death, free in the sense that the Christian no longer has to sin and death has no power over you. The death our sin deserves has no power over you anymore because the penalty for that sin has been paid for. And this is what Paul refers to is the law of the spirit of life, which he goes on to define in verses three and four. You see, the law tells us what it takes to please God, but there's a big problem. Because of your flesh, you're unable to fulfill the law. The law tells you what is right and what wrong, but it doesn't give you the power to basically live up to it. And since the law could only detect our sin, God had to send his son to defeat it at the cross, as Paul tells us in verse three. And in order to defeat sin, Jesus had to become like those bound in it or sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, as verse three says. It being important to note that it doesn't say that Jesus was sinful flesh, but became like it basically by being born as a baby and living as a human on this earth, as Jesus was in fact sinless when he lived on this earth, which allowed him to be perfect, the perfect offering required by God to pay the just penalty required uh, for all the sins of mankind, so that Jesus could condemn sin in the flesh, as verse three says, which happened 
when the condemnation our sin deserved was laid upon him on the cross. So, because Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, as verse 4 says, believers who are in Christ, who are tied to Christ, have fulfilled it as well. It not being fulfilled by us or with anything we've done by our actions, but it being fulfilled in us through our faith in Jesus as it's Jesus's righteousness, not ours, his, that fulfills our obligation to live in perfect accordance with the law. And it's Jesus that took the punishment the law required for our disobedience to it when we fall short of it. So because of that, we have fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in Christ. And Paul tells us in verse 4 that the person who surrenders control of their life to the Holy Spirit, we let the Holy Spirit lead us instead of letting our flesh lead us, is the one who's going to get to experience the freedom that comes with being under the law of the spirit of life rather than the failure that comes with trying to live under the law of sin in death. If you try to live being a good person, you're going to experience failure. But if you live under the grace of God, the law of the spirit of life, you experience freedom. If I go to the airport, which I did in getting here, you see lots of airplanes, okay? Now, all those airplanes sit on the ground and they don't move on their own because of the law of gravity, all right? But as soon as you turn on their engines, a greater law comes into play. It's called the law of aerodynamics. And although the law of gravity is still very much in effect trying to keep those planes on the ground, that greater law, results in a powerful force that allows the planes to overcome that pull of gravity and make those airplanes go in the air and fly. And like that example, Paul's telling us here, we are freed from the law of sin and death through the spirit of Jesus Christ who lives in us and enables us to overcome our flesh because he is far greater and much more powerful. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Paul going on to tell us in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, or it leads to death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace, or it leads to life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul told us in verse 4 that it's much better to follow the Spirit, allow ourselves to be controlled by God's Spirit instead of following our flesh. And here in verses 5 through 8, he goes on to tell us why. Paul telling us in verse 6 that it's important that your mind is set in the right place because when it's focused on the things of the Lord, that's the things of the Spirit, you will experience life and peace. But if you are set, if your mind's set on the things of the flesh, if you're following after what your flesh wants, it will lead to death. And this right here is one of the biggest deceptions of Satan because he wants us to believe the opposite. He wants us to believe that if we follow what our flesh wants, somehow we're going to be satisfied by the things in life. But it's the opposite is what Paul says. He said, no, you're, you're not going to find life. You're not going to have peace when you follow your flesh. It's only going to be through following God and his will for you that you're going to find those things. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we've probably experienced that in life. When we do what our flesh wants and it's contrary to what God's word says, it may give you some type of temporary satisfaction, but it doesn't last it doesn't ultimately lead to peace in your life. It doesn't give you what you're looking for. And that's what Paul's saying right here. Paul telling us in verse seven that you can't even trust your flesh because by nature, it's hostile towards God. Or by nature, it doesn't want to submit to God in his law, but rather do the opposite of what it's told to do. How many of you guys have experienced that in life? That when somebody tells you to do something, you don't want to do it. You want to do the opposite. You see that in the youngest baby or toddler 
when they're first born and you're trying to teach them what's right and wrong. You tell them to do something. I remember all my kids, for the most part, don't touch the plug. Oh, okay, and they want to touch it, all right? That's our sinful nature, and, and he says here, that's our flesh. You can't trust that, and therefore, it's impossible to please God by following our flesh, as verse 8 says, because it leads you in the opposite direction of where God wants you to go. And all you have to do is look back to the first account of the two people, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 to see that example because they had perfect fellowship. They were created to have a relationship with God. And it was, it was a perfect relationship until they followed their flesh, right? Because that's what the serpent tempted Eve and Adam to do. It says in Genesis 3, 6, that the reason Eve listened to the serpent, Satan, was that she saw that the tree was beautiful. It looked, the fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So that's all her flesh. Well, it looks good, even though God says it wasn't good for me. It looks like it'll taste me. And you know what? That, that wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil, that sounds like a good thing. The, the serpent said that I'd be like God. So I'll follow my flesh. And what did that lead for them? Death which is exactly what God said. He said, you can eat whatever you want, just not from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it will lead to death, which is exactly what Paul's reiterating here. Don't follow your flesh. Follow God. Follow his spirit. But as Paul tells us in Galatians 5.24, for those who belong to Christ Jesus, you've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Or because we are in Jesus, your flesh no longer has the control over you that it used to have. The power of Jesus inside of you has freed you from it, so you don't have to follow it anymore. And now, instead, we've been called by Jesus to do the same thing he told Peter to do back in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, where Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. In essence, following your own way is following your flesh. And he's saying, whatever you do, don't do that. Follow me. Follow what my word says. And if you try to hold on to your life, you try to do what you want, you're going to end up losing it. But if you follow me, that's where you're going to find the true life that I created you for, that you're looking for. And there's a great example in scripture for us of a person who thought he could find what he was looking for in life through indulging his flesh to the fullest, that being Solomon, right? Some people think, you know, if I just had more money, my life would be better. Things would be easier. Well, Solomon had more money than he knew what to do with, and yet he wasn't content. So he tried women, and he amassed a thousand wives and concubines yet he still wasn't happy. So he filled his head with knowledge. And yet in Ecclesiastes 12, 12, he says, much study wears you out. He went on to live lavishly with every luxury you could ever imagine, yet he still was unsatisfied. At the time, he built his empire to be the most powerful in the world, yet he still remained empty. If there was anyone throughout history that it could be said he had everything you could ever want, it would have been Solomon. Yet when he had everything that one could ever want, his conclusion in Ecclesiastes 12.8 was that everything's meaningless. It's completely meaningless or that none of it gave him the fulfillment in life that he was trying to attain. Solomon eventually figuring out what Paul's telling us here in Romans 8, that what we're truly looking for will only be found in the Lord and what he desires for us. As in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Solomon says, here's my final conclusion. Fear God, obey his commands. Live for God and do what he says. That's where you're going to find fulfillment. That's where you're going to find true life. So now that Paul's told us why we should let our Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit lead us, lead our lives rather than our flesh. He's going to tell us how you're able to do this. So he says in verse nine, you, however, are not in the flesh, 
but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of life does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So when you placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit was given to you as a gift to dwell inside of you, to help you know God and follow his will for your life. That's an absolute for all Christians, as Paul says here in verse nine. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, being the third person of the Holy Trinity, this, that being made up of God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Spirit. They're all equal but they're distinct persons that make up one triune God. So to have the Holy Spirit in you is the same as having the Spirit of Christ, as Paul says in verse 9, because they're both equal and in perfect unity. And because God could not live in a sinful home, our body or the old man that was a slave to our sinful flesh had to die, as Paul says in verse 10. And now you've been resurrected, just like Jesus has, in Christ who lives and reigns in and through you. Now, even though the remnant of your fallen flesh still remains, Jesus is way more powerful than our flesh, as Paul's already told us. And as such, we've been given all the help we need to overcome our flesh and follow God instead so that we can experience that life that God desires for us, as Paul says in verse 11, by choosing to let Jesus live through us and follow him instead of choosing to listen to our flesh and follow it when it contradicts what God says is good and right in his word. And then Paul goes on to tell us in verse 12, so then brothers, we're debtors not to our flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live." So Paul reminds us here in verse 12 that you're not a debtor to your flesh. And what he means by that is, what has your flesh ever done good for you? Nothing. Your flesh has never led you in the right direction. And if you look at all the times it's led you in the wrong direction, you don't owe it anything, all right? So why would you want to follow it? You owe it nothing. And he reminds us again in verse 13 that listening to it is ultimately only going to lead us to death. Instead, Paul tells us in verse 13 that the true life we are wanting is going to come by putting to death our flesh by saying no to it in the power of the Spirit, or basically by looking to the Lord to lead us and guide us and help us overcome it, instead of trying to do it yourself. Again, this is a struggle Paul talked about in chapter 7 specifically in that it's not about just trying to be a good person. If you sit there and try to be a good person, the whole point of the gospel or the good news is that you couldn't save yourself. You can't do that. You can't be perfect, and God is perfect, and he demands us to be perfect to have a relationship with him. Otherwise, he'd have to judge our sin. So we couldn't save ourselves no matter how hard we tried, and we can't live in that salvation without God's help. Let me give you an example of, of what I believe shows us how to properly put to death the deeds of our body, of the body, or of our flesh, as Paul's trying to tell us here. And it's from 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 4. It says here, after the Philistines captured the ark of God, they took it from the battleground at Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod, and they carried the ark of God into the temple of Dagon and placed it beside an idol of Dagon. But when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him in his place again. But the next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen face down before the ark of the Lord again. And this time his head and his hands had broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. So I love this story because basically what happens is Philistines are at war with God's people. And they win this war because the, the, the God's people were basically in a, a time of sin. So God allows them to lose, and they get the Ark of the Covenant. They capture it, the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant was symbolic of what? Do you guys know? 
God's presence, right? It would be kept in the holy of holies and, and nobody could go in there except the priest to atone for people's sins. And, and so it, it, it's, it's where God's presence would reside. So this was a big deal, right? And so the Philistines, they, they, they're like, this is their God because they looked at it as like, our God's more powerful because we won. So we'll take their God and we'll put him in our temple with our God. And what happens? Their God falls over. He's like this big stone statue and he falls over, right? And they have to prop him up. Never a good thing if you have to prop your God up, all right? But they prop him up, and the next day they come in, and their God falls over again, and his head's chopped off, and his hands are chopped off, those being symbolic of power. And so they eventually end up getting rid of the ark, because they put two and two together and go like, okay, we got to get rid of this thing, and they send it back to Israel. But here's what I want to point out in that. What led to the Philistines' false god of Dagon being toppled over or defeated? It was the ark being brought in there, right? Which was symbolic of God's presence. And so too with us, when our flesh is struggling with sin, the answer is never to try to topple it over ourselves or to try to crucify it in our own power. Whenever we have a dagon of sin in our lives, the answer is always to bring in the spirit of the Lord to defeat it. And what that looks like for me in my life is it's talking to God about things in prayer instead of trying to handle them on my own when I'm dealing with hard things or when I'm dealing with sin. It's listening to worship music and praising God, reminding myself of all his goodness and the reasons I have to thank him. It's, it's being in his word. It's doing life with other believers so we can, I can be strengthened, I can be encouraged by them. That's how I bring the spirit of God and allow him to fill me as his temple. And when that happens, I just naturally lose interest in the things of the world that my flesh can desire, not because I wrestled myself free from them, but rather because I brought in the presence of God and what he has for me is so much better. And it's so critical for us to understand and learn that lesson because often we try to tackle sin, we try to tackle hard things in our flesh, and we not only end up unsuccessful, we end up exhausted. When God's word makes it really simple, it tells us in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Or simply what that's saying is love God first and foremost, and he will help you have the right desires in your heart, which will replace the wrong desires of your flesh. Amen? Verse 14, it says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, for they did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So this is interesting because Paul doesn't say it's those that go to church are sons of God or it's those that read their Bibles are his children or those that take communion are his family. None of those things are bad, but none of those things are proof of your salvation. What is proof of us being his children is that we're looking to be led by his spirit, as Paul says in verse four. And how that practically looks in our lives is that we are letting the Holy Spirit draw us close to Jesus. Or basically, instead of allowing distance in our life, we're always letting God draw us and keep us close to him. And there's multiple ways that that happens in our life, but we, we wanna be close to God. It means that we're not looking to guide our own lives. We're looking to God through the Holy Spirit to guide us. We're not looking to govern our own lives or anything in this world to govern us. We're looking to God and his word. We're looking to the Holy Spirit to be the governing authority in our lives. That's what it means. And when we're doing these things, we'll know it because guess what? When there's sin in our life, we'll be convicted and we'll go to God repenting of it. We'll, we'll be led to anything that keeps us close to Jesus. We'll be led to follow the truth of God's word. We'll be led to the love of God, both in knowing that you're loved and also showing that love to others, whether they deserve it or not. We'll be led into holy living. We'll be led into fruitfulness, doing the things God has for us and Him allowing him to use us to glorify himself. We'll be led into the peace 
that surpasses all understanding, peace that isn't based on our circumstances, but based on the God that's in charge of them, will be led into the joy of the Lord and all the other fruits of the Spirit. Paul talks about Galatians 5. And this relationship Paul's talking about that we have with the Holy Spirit, it's meant to be one of cooperation where he leads you and you let him lead you. Under the law, we were in slavery, which led to a constant fear of us falling short, as Paul points out in verse 15. Or basically, we had to do what it said to be right with God and please him, yet we were unable to do it. But our relationship with God is completely opposite. Since we have been brought into the family of God through our faith in Jesus and made his children, we're in a loving relationship with the Lord. And it's such a close intimacy that we've been given the privilege of calling him Abba, Father, as Paul says in verse 15, which translates to Daddy or Papa. That's the type of relationship you've been given with God. We aren't forced to follow God, but if you think about it, it only makes sense since he's your loving father to want to do what he says. Paul goes on to tell us in verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So some interesting things here. God doesn't want you to wonder about your salvation. And this is something that I can see Christians struggle with, all of us, because the enemy wants you to question your salvation. But what Paul says here is one of the reasons the Holy Spirit's been given to you is to remind you that you're saved. And how he does that, how I often tell people, like when they come up and they're struggling with sin and they're wondering if they're saved, I'm like, you wouldn't be convicted if you weren't saved. That's the Holy Spirit, not condemning you, because condemning is not from the God, that's from the enemy, but conviction is good because that's God saying, don't do this, this will harm you. Just as I tell my own kids, don't do this. That's proof that you're saved. And so the Holy Spirit's there to, prove, to remind us, you're saved, I'm here, I'm here to help you, I'm here to guide you, do this, don't do that. Remember God's promise, it helps you remember God's promises. That's the Holy Spirit's voice and it's there to remind you of your salvation. And, and knowing, and give you this confidence that you can know you're God's children. And in knowing you're God's children, Paul says here, you can also know you're an heir with Christ. All the promises we've received as being a part of God's family are received because of Christ. So we don't have to doubt them because they were never dependent on our actions or our efforts. They're completely received as a free gift by God's grace. So we don't have to doubt those. But since we're in Christ, he also points out to us we're also gonna inherit the same sufferings. Or in verse 17, we're gonna share in the same sufferings. Basically, what that means is the same hard things Jesus went through, you're gonna go through in life. And it seems the longer I live to be a Christian, the more God teaches me when I'm going through something hard, he reminds me, Jesus went through this. And he understands my suffering. And this is so I can understand his love for me. Because if he was willing to do this, he was willing to do it for me. That was part of his death. That was part of him living in, as flesh on this earth. And he did that not because he had to, but because he wanted to for you so you could be saved. And so we share in his sufferings. And then the other thing that leads to is that it, sharing in his sufferings, it says, uh, and Paul talks about here in verse 17, it also leads to the same glorification Jesus has experienced. Or basically, the hard things you go through in life have a purpose. Before you were saved, they didn't have a purpose. That's why you had no hope. But now, God, as we're gonna see later in this chapter, not only promises to use everything in your life for good, but he says he's gonna use the very hard things so that you can experience and know him to a greater degree, and you can be further conformed to the image of Jesus. He uses those hard things to make you more like his son, which is a good thing. That's the goal. A couple of years ago, we adopted our dog, Gus Gus. He's a white boxer. My wife wanted to call him Gus Gus because he's like the white mouse in Cinderella. So Gus Gus had to be adapted to our family from the point we adopted him. And what that means is he had to learn not to do the bad things that would cause grief to our family. He had to learn not to poop and pee in the house. He had to learn not to chew up Zeke's toys. He had to learn not to dig up my yard. 
And he's very much learning some of those things still. But he had to go through a little suffering and being disciplined so as to learn not to do those things so that he could experience the full benefits of being a part of our family. So too with us, the suffering we face now is adapting us spiritually to be a part of God's family so that we can fully experience the benefits that he desires for his children. Benefits that Paul's going to continue to share with us as we go through the rest of this chapter that give us every reason to be hopeful. As I said earlier, not only because of the past, as we really talked about, but in the present. When you're going through something hard, which some of you guys shared earlier today, you are going through something hard. God has given you promises to be hopeful no matter what is going on, however hard it might be. And this third benefit of being in Jesus that I'm going to share is one of those things, and that is at any moment, the suffering you're going through is going to end, all right? The next benefit of being in Jesus is that at any moment, the suffering or the hard things you're going through are going to end. Paul says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, you need to understand first and foremost that Paul is not saying this from a place of ignorance, okay? If you've read the book of Acts, you know, and if you haven't, I encourage you to read it. It's good to be in God's word by yourself, but you know that Paul's life was filled with tribulation that most of us are never gonna see, all right? He was almost stoned to death. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked multiple times, left for dead. He's gone through everything. And he's saying, despite all that suffering, that he still considered the future glory that he would one day experience in the Lord's presence to be far greater. In fact, he says in verse 18, it's not even worth comparing to the hard things I've gone through. It's gonna be so great. This glory being something that he says in verse 18 is is to be revealed to us. And the implication there is that it already exists. It's out there. We just haven't fully seen it yet. And the fact that this glory is already real and out there, and that today just may be the day that we fully get to experience it, should be something that motivates us to keep moving forward in our relationship with the Lord. Or, or basically our hope in the glorious future awaiting us being what will keep us going through any hard thing we might face in our present circumstances. Paul talks about this specifically in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they will produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. So our motivation to continue to persevere and endure through the trials we so often face in this life is that any moment they're gonna end. And when they do end, they're gonna be gone forever. And that future glory that we're all waiting for will begin, and it's going to last for all eternity. And even though the suffering, when we are going through it, it doesn't feel short-lived, it doesn't feel insignificant, I guarantee 100% that when you see Jesus face-to-face in the light of the glory and grace you're going to experience for all eternity, it's going it's to seem like it was nothing when you, when you get there. Amen. That's what Paul's saying here. And as such, Paul tells us in Romans 13, uh, 11, he says, now's the time to wake up for our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. Basically, if we have this mindset that, man, I'm a day closer to being with Jesus. It could happen today. He might come back and get me or I might go to be with him. That will cause you to, to wake up, to be alert, to be all about following God and what his will is for you in your life. Amen. And we aren't the only ones that are eager to see his glory. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what he's saying here is that this future glory we're looking forward to as sons or children of God, as verse 19 says, uh, it's also eagerly being anticipated by all God's creation because it's not just gonna be beneficial to you and me, it's gonna be beneficial to them because they've been subjected to the fallout of humanity's sin. And that's not the way God intended it. So they're looking for, forward to things being restored when Jesus comes back the way they should be. And you don't have to look too hard. I mean, creation, yes, it has beautiful sunrises, it has beautiful sunsets, but it also has earthquakes and hurricanes and, and all, all the devastation that you see and, and the survival of the fittest, this animals, you know, devouring animals, you know, all that is a result of humanity's sin. It isn't the way it was meant to be. But when Jesus comes back, things are gonna be very different on this earth as he brings order to it with his rule and reign. And we actually get a glimpse of that in Isaiah 11. I'm gonna read a portion of that because it sounds pretty cool. Isaiah 11, six through nine, it says, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord." This is why even now creation is groaning not with death pangs, but rather with birth pangs, as verse 22 says, because they realize that when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring things back to the life God intended them to be. And it's a day when he comes back, as Isaiah 55, 12 tells us, where the mountains and hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Amen. And as believers, this is something we're yearning for as well, as Paul goes on to tell us in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So, the first fruits Paul talks about in verse 23 were basically when there was a harvest, they were the first crops that were picked. And the idea he's trying to convey to us is that through your faith in Jesus, you've already been given a first taste of God's glory in your life. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 8, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, right? So, we, of all people, should be looking forward to experiencing God's glory to the fullest because what we've seen, we've seen it in part, in part, and it's, it's good. And so we know that we're, we're waiting for that full fulfillment. And he talks about this inward desire that we all have as believers in verse 23 in experiencing the consummation of our adoption into God's family, which is going to happen when we see the Lord face to face. That's when our salvation will be complete, at which point we're going to be in our fully redeemed, resurrected bodies, as Paul talks about in verse 23, that are no longer going to be hindered by your flesh because your flesh is going to be fully dead at that point. So everything that comes with your flesh, all the pain, all the sorrow, that's going to be gone. Revelation 21.4 tells us that. And then 1 Corinthians 15 tells us all the sickness, all the death, it's all going to be gone forever. And it's in this hope that we were saved, as Paul says in verse 24. Or basically, when you were saved, you were given hope or a sure expectation that the best is yet to come. You were given something to look forward to, that this earth is as hard as it's ever going to get for you. 
And yes, it feels hard at the moment, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to all eternity. And it only gets better from here for us as believers. That is our hope. We're looking forward to the future. Paul going on to say in verse 24 that if you'd fully, if you had already fully experienced God's glory, then you'd have nothing to be hopeful about. But since we haven't fully experienced yet, we still have something to look forward to. And that something is a reason to persevere and patiently wait, as Paul says in verse 25, being completely confident that this is what's coming for you as a believer because God has said so and God is not a liar. He is faithful to keep his promises. Sometimes my wife and I, we like to give our kids incentives to motivate them to do certain things. Maybe that's motivation to be good or be diligent with their schoolwork or to get their chores down. We give them something to look forward to. Let's say video games. You can have a couple hours of video games if you do well on your schoolwork or if you get these things done so that they're basically motivated to persevere and endure through things that they might be tempted to give up on without that incentive to keep going. Well, as a Christian, we've been given the ultimate incentive to keep following Jesus, to stay close to him, to be in the will that he has for us right out of this life, right into the next. And as such, that's where our focus needs to be, on the future glory that awaits us, on what's coming for us, not on the here and now or the temporary hard things that we face along the way. Amen? But we can still struggle with that, right? We know what's coming, but when you're in the midst of that hard thing, it's still hard, and we can lose sight of what's coming. Well, the good news is that we're not expected to deal with those hard things because of the weakness of our flesh in our own power. And Paul goes on to tell us in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul here gives us the next benefit of being a follower of Jesus that is meant to produce hope even in the midst of any hard thing you're going through, and that is that the Holy Spirit is praying on your behalf. The longer I follow the Lord, the more instances I see where even though I think I know what's best in this situation, I'm completely wrong. Things work out way differently than I wanted, and they're way better, or things don't work out the way that I was praying and I, and I see, or I, I make things work out a certain way, but I see that that was the wrong way. And so really what that's shown me is I have no idea what the Lord is wanting to do in my life more times than not. And because of that, my attitude in prayer has changed from a posture of trying to direct God to wanting to look to be directed by God. And what that often means is I come to God understanding that I don't know what you're doing, so therefore I don't even know how to pray. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go to you, Lord, because I know that I should pray because you tell me to, but I don't even know what to ask for, so I'm just gonna trust you to do what you know is best. And what Paul says here in verse 26 is that when we're feeling that way, when we're feeling like I don't even know how to pray in the midst of this hard thing or in this crazy thing you're doing, Lord, God himself through the Holy Spirit helps us by praying for us or interceding on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. Or the idea is through communication beyond our ability to express or that cannot be articulated without the help of the Holy Spirit. And while this may include praying with the spiritual gift of tongues that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14 too, where he says, for if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking only to God since people won't be able to understand you. You will be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. Or 1 Corinthians 14, 14, where he says, for if I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying. It's not limited to that spiritual gift because here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is plenty capable of praying on your behalf without you needing to say anything for him, okay? Paul telling us in verse 27, that the Holy Spirit is better at praying for us than we ever could be because he's able to search your hearts. 
So sometimes I, I'm not praying with the right motivation, but the, I'm not fooling the Holy Spirit. He knows what I should be praying. He also has unlimited knowledge where I have limited knowledge, but because he's equal with God, he knows all things. And as the Holy Spirit is in perfect unity with God the Father, he's able to pray according to the will of God, as Paul goes on to say in verse 27. And that right there is the greatest benefit. Because as I said at the beginning, even though our prayer is to be directed at God, we're never to be directing God. And the reality is, because of your limited understanding, you can't see the whole picture. I can't see everything God's doing. And many times, because, like if I'm being honest with myself, I don't even know how to pray because of that truth. And so when I have no idea, but I know God does, instead of telling him what I think he should do, I can just groan, Lord, you see what's going on. I don't even know what you're doing in this situation. I don't know what's best, but I know you do. And so I'm just gonna trust you. Just do your will. Romans 12, 2 says it's good, pleasing, and perfect. That's what I want, something good, pleasing, and perfect. And I trust you to make that happen. And you can trust that God's gonna do that, that the Holy Spirit's gonna pray those prayers on your behalf. And here's thing I, one thing I'd encourage you, though, just because you don't know how to pray, don't let that be an excuse for you not praying. Because what the Bible makes clear is that prayer is something that God uses to work. Prayer is a catalyst to him doing stuff in your life. And what it actually tells us in James 4, 2, it says you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Or somehow, we can actually limit God in what he would, could, or wants to do by not asking for his help. So if I don't pray, basically I'm left wondering, well, maybe it would have made a difference. But if I do pray, I can be at total peace knowing that, hey, I've asked God to take care of this situation the best way possible, which only he knows how. And now I can just rest and wait upon him and trust him to do that, knowing that first the spirit groans for me, and then as we're gonna see next week in verse 34, the son intercedes for me, and then as we're going to see next week in verse 28, the Father is going to do what's best concerning me. Get that? The Spirit groans for me, the Son intercedes for me, and the Father will do what's best concerning me. And also the fact that the Holy Spirit's praying on my behalf according to God's will is a comfort in those times where I do think I know how to pray, that even if I'm absolutely getting it wrong, the Holy Spirit's still praying the right prayers on my behalf. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, I think we'll stop there for today. And one thing that I would just encourage you guys, I try to encourage our church in this. These are meant to be principles that we can not only know in our heads, but really believe in our hearts so that we experience the benefits of being God's children and the hope that he's given us. And I always encourage my church, just because you know it in your head, don't fool yourself that you're actually, because you know the word, don't fool yourself that you're a doer of it. Because we can say amen, we can underline it in our Bibles, and we can leave this church and never practice these things in our life, not really believing them, and miss out as a Christian on the very benefits that God has given you through faith in his son, Jesus. If you came in here condemned over sin, that is not from God. That is from the devil. And what God would say today is that, my son paid for that, a great price. You are forgiven. You can come boldly before the throne and come honestly with that sin to God and say, I'm sorry, but I thank you, Lord, that it's paid for in full and I'm forgiven. That conviction is good, but there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus and leave this place without any condemnation whatsoever. Maybe this is maybe you're visiting here today and you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior and that's what you need to do because you do have sin in your life and it's separating you from God, but God sent his son to live on this earth so that he could live a sinless life and pay the price, the just price, the penalty that all our sin deserved, every sin we've ever done, every sin we can ever do on that cross so that we could be forgiven and have be restored to the relationship God created us to have with him. You can do that. That's between you and God. You can say, Lord, 
I'm a sinner. I need you to forgive me. I believe your son did that work on the cross. Come into my life. Be my Lord, because I suck at being Lord myself. I need you to lead me. You can do that today. And then you can leave here in the, knowing that in the power of Jesus Christ, you don't have to keep making those same mistakes. Because God has freed you not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin because of his spirit inside of you, you do not have to keep listening to your flesh. You are free of it. And you can rely on God to give you the power to overcome those temptations. And if you were going through something hard, maybe even came here wondering, is this ever going to end? I can answer 100%. It will. We have that hope the hard will not last forever in any of our lives. Sometimes God relieves it in this life before we ever get to the next life. But if not, at the very next life, it will be gone forever. And the glory that you get to experience in being with your Savior face to face is what you're going to endure for all eternity. And it's going to make everything we go through here so worth it when we see all the good things God used that for in our life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much again for your word. Thank you for the hope it gives us. Thank you for our, the penalty of our sin being paid for in full and that we can stand here knowing, not because of how we behaved yesterday or today or ever in our lives, but because of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, that there is no condemnation. It's because of you and we thank you so much for that sacrifice, Lord, because it was a great one. And we are forever grateful that we are right in your eyes, that you don't see our sin anymore. You see your son in us. And we want to live in that truth, Lord. We don't want to, we don't want to listen to the enemy's lies of condemnation. When we're convicted, we want to come to you boldly, knowing we're forgiven, and look to you to help us live in that power of the freedom that, that, that bondage of our flesh has been broken and, and live in that new life, following you in your son, looking to you and your Holy Spirit to empower us to live there, Lord. And Father, thank you for this great hope you've given us on what's to come, that the hard things, the tribulation you were honest we'd face in this world will not last forever, that they will be a momentary light affliction when we're in that place of being with you in eternity in heaven, where there will be no more pain, sorrow, sickness. And Lord, in the meantime, we're thankful that you're with us when we are struggling and you're, you're praying on our behalf. You're, you're with us even praying for things that we don't know how to pray so that your good, pleasing, and perfect will, as you tell us in Romans 12, is happening in our lives, will happen in our lives. May we just follow as you lead and not get in the way of that, Lord. And may we rely on you for strength and grace when we have none of our own. In Jesus' name, amen.